the grace of our Savior, His faithfulness. Just think about His faithfulness for a few moments. If I had been God, I would have given up on me a long time ago. I'm thankful for His faithfulness. His love, His watch care over us. I know we don't like it, but can I tell you this this morning? I'm even thankful for the chastening of God. It helps keep us in line. It helps us to be Christ-honoring in our lives. And while it's not something we enjoy, it is good for us, and it is profitable to us. I am thankful for a wonderful Savior. What a friend we have in Jesus. Let's think of that second verse. Have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. And I, I thought as we sang that, isn't it amazing how often we make prayer the last resort? I read something a few years ago, about two or three years ago, and I, I made a mental note of it. I thought, boy, what a way to state it. And I wish I could remember who it was that I was reading and, and came across this statement. They, they, they wrote it this way. They said, prayer ought to be our steering wheel, not our spare tire. It ought to be that which guides us each and every step of the way, not the thing we resort to in an emergency. And... Uh, I love it. Can we find a friend so faithful who will all our sorrows share? Jesus knows our every weakness. Take it to the Lord in prayer. He knows where we need strength. He knows where we need help. And He's offered to give it to us. He won't force it on us, but He's offered to give it to us. There are a lot of people in recent days, I was talking to the men, we took a few of the men out, uh, a couple of men out Friday for some breakfast. Uh, there are a lot of people hurting in this day. A lot of people. I, uh, the phone rings several times a week. Pastor, would you pray for this? It's a burden. And uh, sometimes people in our church, sometimes just people in the community, Sometimes people uh, out of town. It's not just isolated to, to right here. People are hurting. And I'm thankful we have a God who knows our every weakness. He knows the feeling of our infirmities. I'm thankful we have a God who can identify, who will strengthen us and bring comfort to us, but also empathize with us and show mercy and grace and long-suffering. And uh, what a great Savior we have. I, I hope, if nothing else, we leave here today thinking, oh, what a Savior. What a great Savior. And uh, that has nothing to do with the message this morning. I wish it did. I wish we'd just go right on into a message that just went along those lines. But uh, God gave a different message this morning. I almost switched it just as singing the songs. I was thinking, boy, that would be a great message to preach. And almost went over to Psalm 23. What a great psalm that is. Isn't that a great psalm? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth 
my soul. Isn't that a great statement? If anybody knew sorrow, David knew sorrow. And he could him, he restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness, it says, for his name's sake. Talks about his rod and his staff, they comfort me. Talks about God preparing a table before us in the presence of our enemies. Talks about God's goodness and his mercy following us. What a great, great psalm. I love it. I was talking to someone the other day, uh, another lady that had called that was struggling with some issues and battles, a lot of uh, a lot of sorrow, a lot of depressions, and they've had a lot of issues in their life in the past, and uh, they were just seeking for some kind of relief from Scripture. And I told him, I said, why don't you just start reading some psalms? It won't take very long before the Lord will encourage your heart. And uh, what a great, great... Uh, I'm thankful for the Bible. It's all good, isn't it? We're going to turn to James chapter 4, but you could turn anywhere in here and it'd be good. It's all good. Every once in a while, I think Brother Harold and I and a couple other folks and a couple other men sometimes will be talking. We'll say, boy, this is really good, as if the rest of it's not really good. It's all good, isn't it? It's all good. It's all profitable to us. And we thank the Lord for it. James chapter 4. James chapter 4, and a message that I think is very, very needful and applicable to the day that we're living in, and probably needs to be preached, at least the topic needs to be preached probably regularly, uh, just to help encourage and remind us of some things. In in, uh, James, I'm going to go to Psalms again, James chapter 4, and verse number 1, James writes this, From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence, even of your own lusts? I want you to notice this statement. That war in your members. Ye lust and have not. Ye kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. Ye fight and war, yet ye have not, because ye ask not. Ye ask and receive not, because ye ask amiss, that ye may consume it upon your own lusts. The adulterers and adulteresses know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God. Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Do ye think that the Scripture saith in vain, The Spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? But he giveth for grace. Wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but... Giveth grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners. Purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. (coughs) Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord. And He shall lift you up. Father, once again we come to You. We ask for the next few moments to give us the understanding that only the Holy Spirit can give us into the truth of Scripture. May it overwhelm our hearts. May it be engraved upon them. May we leave here with the thoughts 
of this truth upon our minds, that we would meditate on them throughout this day, that we would mull them over and allow them to sink in and become a part of our lives, maybe often reminded of them. And so, Lord, I ask that You would, for the next few moments, help us and give aid where it's needed and being able to clearly articulate and to give this truth to those that need to hear. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The Bible uses this term lust in Scripture. Oftentimes, we were sharing this the other night in church, that immediately when we think of that term in Scripture, our minds almost always go to just a specific area. We think, oh, that's dealing with sensual things or things of an immoral uh, issue regarding men and women. But can I tell you this, that lusts in this, in this context are, are dealing with the appetites of the flesh. Not necessarily relationships between men and women, but any type of appetite of the flesh that it would be contrary to the things of Scripture. And James is writing here, and he makes a few observations in the first three verses. He says this in verse number, uh, verse number 1. He says, From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence even of your lusts? And I want you to notice this phrase, that war in your members. When we get saved, the moment we get saved, the Holy Spirit of God comes to live inside of us. Now, there are three parts to God. There's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. They are a triune God. They are three in one. All of them are absolute holiness. In fact, the Bible says of God that in Him is no darkness at all. There is no sin. It's not that He's overwhelmingly good and there's just few problems that He has. God is perfect. God is absolute holiness. And understand this, that because the Holy Spirit is part of God, it is part of that triune Godhead, that the Holy Spirit, I mean, it's even part of His name, is absolute holy. There is no darkness in Him at all. And, and so when we get saved, He comes to dwell in us. Now that becomes a problem. Because our nature is absolute sinful. In fact, it is what we specialize in. So much so that we are called a sinner. If a man knows how to do plumbing, we call him a plumber. If a man knows how to do carpentry work, we call him a carpenter. If a race car driver knows how to drive a race car, we call him a race car driver. A man that knows how to sin and specializes in it and does it well, and it's his nature to do so, it is his inclination, it's what he is naturally able to do, he is known as a sinner. The two cannot coexist. And so a battle takes place. A war within our members. And it's very important for you and I to understand this and to know this. It is not wrong that the battle is taking place in your life. Oftentimes we say, well, why do I have to struggle so much? Because that's part of being on this side of heaven. What makes it wrong is, do we gravitate toward, do we like to fulfill the lust of the flesh? Or do we long to walk in the Spirit? Because James says, they war in our members. They're in a constant struggle. They're in a daily battle. And I wish I could stand up here and tell you, if you ever get victory in it, you'll never have to deal with it again. 
but it is something that is an ongoing war and an ongoing battle that will take place every moment of every day until we get to heaven. It is something that we have to be consciously aware of and purpose in our hearts, Lord, I want to be surrendered and yielded to the Holy Spirit in my life. And we've got to make that a a regular mindset and a regular thought process, and it ought to become the, the, the major portion of our character. Oftentimes we think, well, uh, when we go to church and pastor preaches on walking in the Spirit, and I, I, I bow my head at the end of the service and I make a commitment to the Lord, Lord, I'm going to walk in the Spirit this week, then we think we can just say, Lord, I made that decision Sunday and not think about it the rest of the week. No, no. That's not what James is saying here. There's a battle going on. In fact, we're going to see here in a few moments that they actually set themselves in array with one another. There's a, there's a warring that takes place here. Notice he says in verse 2, Ye lust and have not, ye kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. Ye fight and war, yet ye have not because ye ask not. When we follow after our lusts, the lusts of the flesh, the desires of the flesh, you can search for that all you want to, and you're never going to accomplish the goal that you're looking for. Because you have a wrong source. You have a wrong source. Hold your place here for a moment and turn to the Old Testament book of Haggai, if you will. Haggai. And it's a small book in the Old Testament. If you don't know where it is, go to Matthew and go back, I think it's four or five books. It's towards the end of the Old Testament. you got Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, I think, something like that. Just two or three or four books. And then comes Matthew. So if you don't know where Haggai is, just go to Matthew and go back a little bit. All right? Look with me in Haggai, if you will, for just a second. And I want to give you a little bit of background on this. God God had judged the nation of Israel and had brought them into captivity under the Persian Empire. Under Well, initially under Nebuchadnezzar and then later under the Medes and the Persians. And they were they were... Uh, their, their city had been destroyed. Jerusalem had been destroyed uh, three different times. Nebuchadnezzar had come in <coughs> and laid siege to it and uh, had destroyed the temple, had carried off the articles of the temple uh, into captivity. He had taken a lot of the children of Israel into captivity. That's where you have Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. All that happened under Nebuchadnezzar, carried off into captivity. The Persians come along. They defeat Nebuchadnezzar. And uh, they, under Nehemiah, uh, are given permission by Artaxerxes to come back and to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and to rebuild the temple. And great revival takes place and God prospers. You know the story of Nehemiah. And the first half of the book of Nehemiah talks about the rebuilding of the wall. And the last half of the book of Nehemiah talks about the rebuilding of the people. How great revival swept. The book of the law was found and it was read and they tore their, rent their clothes and had sackcloth and ashes and and said, Lord, we're going to recommit ourselves to the, to the covenant that we made long ago, that You would be our God, and we're going to follow after You. And they began to build the temple. And they got the foundations done, and then all the work stopped on it. They all went to their own houses and began to build their own houses, and Haggai comes on the scene. God says, Haggai, I need you to go to the people of Israel, because they should have finished the house, and they're not doing it. They should have gone and finished the temple, and they're, they're running to their own houses. In verse number 4 of chapter 1, the Bible says, Is it time for you, O ye, to dwell in your sealed houses? And this house, referring to the temple, lie waste. 
Now therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Wake up. Understand where you're at is what he's saying here. Ye have, look at this, ye have so much and bring in what? Little. Ye eat, but ye have not enough. Ye drink, but ye are not filled with drink. Ye clothe you, but there is none warm. And he that earneth wages, earneth wages to put it into a bag with holes. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. What had happened? These people had followed their own desires. And it did not satisfy. They were laboring for their own self-gain, and it did not accomplish what they were trying to accomplish. I already lost my place here, but I'm going to go back to it for a minute. Because I, want you, I wasn't going to read further, but I want you to read a little further with me, can we? Let's look at verse number 8. This is what God tells them to do to rectify the situation. He says, Go up to the mountain and bring wood and build the house, and I will take pleasure in it, and I will be glorified, saith the Lord. You looked for much, and Lord came to little, and when you brought it home, I did blow upon it. Why, saith the Lord of hosts? Because mine house that is waste, and you run every man to your own house. Therefore the heaven over you is stayed from dew, and the earth is stayed from her fruit. And he tells them that he, draw, he cries for a draught, and he brings a draught on the people. Why? Because they were consumed of their own lusts, their own desires. They weren't following after what God wanted them to do. They were following after what they wanted them to do. And can I tell you this today? Not only among unsaved people, not only among the wicked of our society, not only among those that we would look at and say those are ungodly people in our society, but in our pews of our churches around our country today, there are many that are following after their own lusts, their own desires. They're following after what they want. They, 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 want the, they want all this stuff, and they're not, they're not walking in the Spirit. They're not walking with a conscious thought that there's a battle going on, a war that's taking place in their members every moment of every day. One is tugging for them to follow after and to seek after. There's a reason why Jesus taught that the love of money is the root of all evil. He doesn't say money is. He says the love of money is the root of all evil. If that's your motivation in life, success, wealth, affluence, influence, fame, fortune, if those are the things we pursue after, those are our own lusts. If God chooses to give them to us, that's fine. But we need to be seeking first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. We need to be walking in the Spirit first, and James is speaking to this end. He says, you lust, you have these, these fleshly appetites, this carnality about you, and you have not. So much so, you're pursuing them to the place where you're willing to kill for them, and you still don't have them. He tells them in verse number 2, he says, you desire to have and cannot obtain. You fight and you war. There's a struggle going on, and you have not. Why? Because you're looking in the wrong place. You have not because you ask not. Ask who? Ask the Lord. Put your eyes upon Him. He goes on to say in verse number uh, 3, He says, You ask and receive not. Because you ask amiss to consume it upon your own lusts. God, God doesn't want us to pray for the carnal fleshly natures for Him to supply the, the appetites of our carnal fleshly natures. He wants us to come and to pray and ask Him for the things that are within His will. The things that pertain to the Spirit. The things that pertain to Him. The Bible tells us 
that, that God will give uh, uh, if we delight ourselves in the Lord. The Bible says, He shall give thee the desires of thy heart. Sometimes we take that verse out of context saying, well, all I've got to do is please the Lord and He's going to give me anything I ask for. That's not what that verse is saying. What it's saying is, if I delight myself in the Lord, my desires are going to be given to me. I'll have right desires now. Not fleshly desires. I'll now have desires that glorify God. I'll now have desires in my heart that I want to please Him. Those are the desires I'm going to get. Not that He's going to give me everything my carnal soul wished for, because James tells us that. And this is what he's speaking about here. What is the object of your pursuit in life? What is it that motivates you day in and day out? What is it that drives you? I understand we've got to make a living in life. I understand we have to make some money and to care for our families. And I'm not, I'm not speaking to that end. What I'm getting at is we oftentimes neglect the pursuit of walking in the Spirit because we are so consumed with gaining way more than we need. I want more. I want more. I, I told I was, I was listening to Brother uh, Randy Casey a couple years, several years ago. And he said, you know, uh, these guys that enjoy boating, they get two-foot-itis. Uh, they get a 14-foot boat, and they say, boy, if I just had a 16-foot boat, I'd be happy. And then they get a 16-foot boat, and the next thing they're saying is, boy, I tell you, if I could just have an 18-foot boat, I'd be happy. They get two-foot-itis. And he used that as an illustration to say, that's our nature. When we're, when we're trying to get the things that our, our flesh wants, and we're being driven by those motivations that we're never satisfied. We, we search for them, we labor for them, we war for them, we kill for them. And we still don't have them, they're not satisfying. He says in verse 4, you adulterers and adulteresses, and I don't believe here that he's referring specifically to sensual or sexual sins here as much as he's talking about the spiritual adultery that's taking place. The abandoning of walking in the Spirit for the purpose of pursuing after walking after the flesh. That we have turned from that which we should be committed to and in covenant with the Lord in our lives. We've turned from that and we've gone back to the old nature and the old appetites of the flesh. And he says this, you adulterers and adulteresses, know ye that the friendship of the world is enmity with God. Something that is an enmity, it's a hatred for, it's an opposition towards. I wrote down three things that enmity will cause. Number one, it will cause you not to obey the law of God. It will cause you not to obey the law of God. Number two, it will cause you not to submit to His authority in your life. And number three, it will not seek to honor Him. Why? Because I'm at enmity with Him. When I am friends with the world's mindset, when I allow the carnality and the things that entice me from the world, I don't have friendship with God. I am at enmity with Him. That's what James says. Well, Pastor, I, I, just, I, I want to I enjoy some of life. God will give you plenty of enjoyment. If you follow after Him, trust me, the peace, the satisfaction that comes your way. <coughs> there were a few things when I was young that I wanted to do with my life. I, I wanted to go into computers early on before I surrendered to preach. I was, I was head over heels on computers. I'd stay up 
hours and hours into late into the night, even during school nights, and program basic language back when the home computers first came out and write programs thousands of lines long. All this code and stuff that had come out in the basic language back then. Then they came out with all these other languages and Pascal and Cobalt and uh, PHP and some of these others, you know, HTML code and JavaScript and all these other things. And I, I tried to stay up with it for a long period of time, but that's not what God had for me. I love flying airplanes. I wanted to fly airplanes. And I, I, I thought, Lord, I just want to, I want to become a pilot. And then as I got a little older, I thought, boy, I, I, God got a hold of my heart. I thought, boy, I sure would love to go to the mission field one day. I, I want to be a missionary so bad I couldn't stand it. I told, when, when my wife and I were still married, I, I used to tell her, I said, honey, if, if the Lord ever cracks the window for us to go to the mission field, we're out of here. We're gone. And I thought, I'm never going to see any of this stuff. Never going to see it. You know, to this day, I still get a lot of phone calls from people saying, can you help me with my computer? And I enjoy that. And I've gotten the opportunity to get my pilot's license, and I've flown airplanes, and I've enjoyed that. And God worked it out for me to be able to do that. <coughs> a number of years ago, I had the wonderful privilege to go on my first missions trip. And I loved it. I didn't want to come home. I wanted to stay there. Over the years, God's given me a number of opportunities to go to foreign mission fields and work and serve. I was talking to my kids the other day, and I said, you know, God has given me a truly full life. These were things that my flesh wanted to do in some cases, and I I just would have enjoyed them. And and I thought, no, I, I want to serve the Lord. And I'll tell you this, if God had never allowed me to fly an airplane, if God had never allowed me to work with computers... I would have still had a full life. Not because I got to do the fleshly things, but because I've gotten the honor and the privilege to serve Him. Why? Because it's not the fleshly things that satisfy. I'm thankful God's allowed me to have those things in my life, but they're not the things I've pursued. They're not the things that I've just made the important thing in my life and, and going after. Why? Because serving the Lord is enough. God is always sufficient. In fact, He is abundant in our lives. There is no greater joy, there is no greater peace than following and walking in the Spirit. To be a friendship of the world is to be in enmity with God. Notice what the Bible says, Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Do you think that the Scripture saith in vain, the Spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? That's what the Bible tells us. That this old flesh nature, it has a tendency to lust towards envy. It has a tendency to lust for those carnal things. And up until now, James kind of paints a pretty pretty dim picture, doesn't he? Well, you got this battle going on in you, and these, these lusts, they're, they're pulling at you. And, and if, you, if you follow after them, you're an enemy of God. If, boy, these are bad, bad things. You've got to be careful with these things. And if we're not careful, we'll read those verses and we'll say, Lord, I'm lost. What am I going to do in my Christian life? I'm going to be susceptible to the old nature all the time. It's constantly pulling at me. How am I going to get through this? James lays all of this out to come to verse number 6. But he giveth more what? Grace. What does grace do? It allows us to have victory over the flesh. He gives us His strength. 
He gives us His Holy Spirit to guide and to direct us. To bring conviction of sin to our hearts and lives. He gives us the Holy Spirit to, to uh, chasten. To do the work of causing us to be drawn to holiness. He giveth more grace. Wherefore He saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace to the what? Humble. you got this battle going on. Your, your, your will, your desire, your lusts want to go after the things of the world. That's what we're good at. We are sinners by nature. But the Holy Spirit comes inside of us. He's drawing our hearts to the Lord. He's causing us to be convicted of our sin. He's causing us to have a great peace and a great love for the Lord Jesus Christ. He's building all of this stuff in us. And when the battle gets the roughest and the hardest and the most difficult, and it feels like, Lord, I just feel like the the flesh is overwhelming me, God says, I'll give you more grace. Humble yourself. What does He mean by that? Don't seek for your will to be done. Don't, don't, Don't always have to be you first. Because notice what He says here. He says, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. He's telling us how to go away from our flesh nature and be afflicted. This is an interesting verse. And mourn. Boy, that doesn't sound like the Lord. Telling us to be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. What's he talking about here? He's talking about us being broken over our sinful condition. It's part of the humbling process. We're to submit ourselves to God. We're to resist the devil and flee from him. It's part of this humbling process. As he says, humble yourselves therefore in the sight of God, and he shall lift you up. It's interesting. Look with me in verse 4 for a moment. We find an interesting concept here in verse 4. He says, You adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that friendship of the world is enmity with God. And if you're in the habit of underlining, I would ask you to underline whosoever, therefore, will. Whosoever, therefore, will. Because being a friend of the world is just as much of a choice on our part as the whosoever will that is mentioned in John 3.16. And whosoever believeth, we've got a choice. And it is our choice to make. I'm either going to choose to walk after the Spirit or I'm going to choose to walk after the flesh and be a friend of the world. God doesn't force it. God gives the command to us as Christians that we're to walk in the Spirit. But we choose then whether we're going to obey that or deny it. We then are going to choose whether we're going to be obedient to God or to ignore it. And I would say this, that far too often, far too often, We ignore it, don't we? We allow the flesh nature, the things that we want to do, to overcome that which the Spirit wants us to do. 
It says, Humble yourselves therefore in the sight of the Lord, and He shall lift thee up. What is He saying? He's saying, Take yourself, your, your desires, your wants, your will. Let's put it that way. He said, Take that and lay it aside. It's not all about you. It's not about what you want. This humbleness is a submission to the Lord. You say, Pastor, how do you know that that's what it's dealing with? Because that's what verse 7 says. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. It's that simple. Isn't that an easy thought? That's not hard to understand. I'll tell you, young children could understand that concept. But can I tell you this? It is one of the most difficult things for you and I to live. Because we like being in control. We like being in control. And we all do. And don't think your pastor doesn't have those urges too and those desires to be in control. I have to submit just like anyone else does. Every single one of us has to come to the place where we say, Lord, I don't want my will done. I want your will done in my life. I'm not up here saying you guys need to do this and I don't have this problem. It is a battle that wars. It is a war that happens in our members every moment of every day. Now, I've said it so often before, the secret of the Christian life comes down to one decision, and that is my will or God's will. It is that simple. James says, humble yourself, therefore. Submit yourselves unto God. Why? Because then we'll be able to be at peace. We'll have what we need. We'll be satisfied with life. We'll have joy. But we've got, to, we've got to humble ourselves first. We've got to be afflicted and mourn. We've got, to, we've got to get rid of that old nature. We've got to get rid of that sin. And walk after the, walk after the Spirit. The sum of the matter comes full circle when we get to verse number 17. And if, if James had started with this verse, he probably wouldn't have had to explain all of this in the first part of it. But I guess the Holy Spirit knew when he told James what to write that just telling us verse number 17 would be overly simplistic to our minds and we would not understand the fullness of it. Let him, or therefore to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is what? It is sin. We don't give a whole lot of thought to this. But when we go through our life without the conscious thought of trying to follow after the Spirit and the things of the Spirit, and we allow our desires and our nature to rule and reign our life, that is a sinful way to live. What an amazing thought. I fear oftentimes that we just put in our hearts or in our minds that... uh, as long as I make that decision for the Lord, as long as I commit that, Lord, I'm going to serve You with my life, that that's a final thing we have to do and, and never have to worry about it again. Or maybe we think, I'll make it today and maybe a few months from now I'll need to address it again in my life. Can I tell you this? It is a daily battle. 
It's an hourly battle. It's a moment-by-moment battle. It's a war that takes place in our members. And it is constantly raging. The flesh is constantly tugging at us. And Satan knows that. And he takes advantage of that. And he tries to deceive us and entice us to make us think that if we follow after the flesh, that's where all the satisfaction in life comes from. He tries to cause us to think that if we'll just do what our flesh wants to do, that that will answer all of our problems in life. We'll, we'll be satisfied. That will give us the greatest happiness, the greatest freedom. And James says no. No. You war and kill to consume it upon your lust. You don't get it. You try to have it and it's not there. Satan's pretty shrewd, isn't he? He gets even God's people, even Christians be enticed by their flesh, by the old nature. And James says, To him that knoweth to do good, and doeth it not to him and to sin. What is the object of our pursuit in life? What is it that motivates us? What is it that drives us? What is it that draws our hearts? In Jeremiah, the Bible tells us that the heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately wicked, who can know it? You know, the truth is, we can deceive ourselves into thinking, well, I know how I am, but I don't even understand my heart the way that God does. I can, I can be fooled into thinking, well, I know where my, my desires lie. I know where my affection is in this life. And the truth is, there's oftentimes I'm blinded to it. It happens and I don't even realize it. I don't even see it. The solution that James gives is to humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Submit yourselves unto God. And he will draw nigh unto you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners. Purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning. Enjoy the heaviness. It might be if we can ever get to this place of humility that James speaks of. Humility in the sight of God. To put aside our old flesh nature and the desires of our heart. It could be that God could do a monumental work in us that we've never seen before. Somebody told D.L. Moody a number of years ago when he was a young man just entering into the ministry. They made a comment to him and said, The world has yet to see what a man fully yielded to God can do. D.L. Moody's desire he was, he got along with the Lord and he said, By the grace of God, I'm going to be that man. And D.L. Moody was, was yielded to the Lord. But can I tell you this? If D.L. Moody could stand here in this pulpit today and look you in the eye, he could tell you this. As much as he strived to be fully yielded to the Lord, I promise you he'd stand up here and tell you, I failed miserably. I wonder what God could do if it would be the diligent, fervent, ardent desire of our heart to yield ourselves, to submit ourselves to the leading of the Holy Spirit, not just today in the church, but every moment of every day.
to let Him guide our steps, to let Him give us the desires of our heart so that we can have right desires. What is the pursuit, the object of our pursuit? What is it that we're going after? What is it that's driving us? Let's stand together, shall we, with heads bowed and eyes closed. Father, we pray that You'll bless the invitation time. And the truth of the matter is, Lord, there's not a single person in this room, not one of us here today, that can say there's no need for us to do any more than we're doing now in the Christian life. The truth is, every single one of us can find some areas that we need to yield more to You. That we need to humble ourselves in. That we need to submit ourselves in and say, Lord, I don't want my will, I want Your will. Father, as long as we're on this side of heaven, we're always going to have that battle. We're always going to have that decision to make. And I pray that You'd give us the grace. Or give us the grace to constantly choose submission to You. Give us that more grace that You spoke about. Give us the strength day by day.